You're listening to Ritual, a podcast for curious humans, all about creative practices, mindset, and professional improvement. I'm your host, Daniel Lamb, CEO of Holland Creative. What can I say about today's guest? I really, really enjoyed this conversation with Scott McBean around all things creativity, spirituality, recovery and healing, and daily creative rituals to stay tapped into the process. And it's just a really great conversation. Let me give you a little bit of background on Scott. Scott is a pastor and a mental health counselor at a small recovery ministry located in Richmond, Virginia. Scott enjoys photography, writing, and recording music, watching movies, and most importantly, spending time with his wife, Brittany, and daughter, Nora. If you don't know Scott, I I sincerely hope that you listen closely and and get to know him through this podcast. Hey, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great to be here. Great to finally meet you and get to talk to you in person since we've only emailed up until now. Indeed. So I'm really excited to talk to you about all things creativity today. So before we do that, I have to ask you my number one question. Scott, what is your ritual? Yeah, I, it's a great question. Uh, I, I don't have, I don't have something that I can say that I do every single day, although I wish that I did. I'll kind of tell you what I would like for my ritual to be, which is I would like to get up in the morning and spend some time reading and writing, which I, I do that probably three or four times a week. And I would like for it to be daily, but just schedules and things get in the way of that. And what, what that tends to look like for me is I have a stack of, this is something I've gotten into as an adult that was never part of my life before, but I have a stack of poetry books from different people and I will read those for 15 or 20 minutes and then write one of my own. And that is just a centering practice for me, almost almost like a mindfulness exercise, so to speak. Yeah, I do that three or four times a week. I, I hope that counts as a ritual. Oh, that definitely counts as a ritual. I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up this idea of poetry. I think that's really great. I used to really struggle to get into poetry just as a reader because I was brought up on a bunch of really old white obtuse stuff from the Victorian world like we are in school, at least if you're my age and you're mid to late thirties, but there's so much really great work out there. That's, that's not like that. And yeah, so I, I aspire to read and write more things like that. So I'm going to take that back to the cave and try it out for myself. I, you said it's like mindfulness practice. Can you talk a little bit about what you see the connection between, I guess, meditation or mindfulness and writing for you? Yeah, definitely. And I, I come at that from two different perspectives. One is that I'm a pastor and centering prayer has been something that I fell in love with later in life, I guess. But then also I'm a mental health counselor. And in, in terms of research, things that really benefit us and, and keep us on an even keel, mindfulness research is just off the charts effective. And people often think that that looks like something like centering prayer or, or sitting in silence or stillness, counting your breaths and things like that. Those are mindfulness practices. Absolutely. But mindfulness practices are also things that engage other senses too. writing checks the box, being out in nature, seeing things, consciously observing what you're looking at, things that you hear, consciously paying attention to what you hear. All right. Like taking dedicated time to engage each one of your five senses serves the same function as some kind of stereotypical mindfulness practice of 
sitting in silence somewhere. The connection for me, I, you know, when I write, I do it with a pen, try to do it very physically because that's how we know that we get the benefit because I'm engaging the touch and the sight and different senses. Even you, you know, you hear the pen cross the paper and whatnot. So yeah, trying to put into practice, I guess, some of what I know is effective from research in terms of managing my day-to-day anxiety. That's where this really comes from. That's super helpful to think about it through that lens. I do meditation practice as well and have studied mindfulness and some of the research on it. And so I can definitely appreciate that you're going at it from a lens of, hey, what's actually scientifically proven to work? And like, how can I take those techniques and put them to work in my own life? I remember I was taking a meditation class at some Buddhist center in Atlanta and one of the exercises they taught us was walking meditation, which I think at the time I mean, I had heard about it, but I had always associated the idea of setting meditation mentally with that's how you do it versus something like walking mindfully or mindful eating or all these other things that we can do. Recently, I actually had this conversation with somebody. There's a Christian mystic or desert father guy named Brother Lawrence. Are you familiar? No, I'm familiar with some of the desert fathers, but that one is not ringing a bell. So Brother Lawrence may not have been a desert father, but his his whole spiel, his whole deal was his practicing the presence of God or meditation, if you will, was in servitude to his other brothers. He was a kitchen monk. And so his whole life was spent cooking and serving others. And so I guess the the idea was that you could do anything mindfully and that anything that you do has the potential to be an act of worship or service. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I you know, and the key just from the mental health side of things, I mean, the key is having something that you're very focused on. And maybe this sounds a bit obtuse, but like you 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 can wash dishes mindfully or not, depending on if you're really engaged and attentive to the process and the things that you're seeing, feeling, hearing, touching. Maybe not tasting in the case of washing dishes, but yeah, if you're if you're really engaged in the process, then yeah, you can get a certain kind of benefit from it. So when we first started chatting, you mentioned that you were working in the realm of pastoring and mental health counseling, but you also have a few different creative outlets. You spoke about writing as one of your focuses, but you're also a musician. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with creativity in your life? Yeah, doing my master's in mental health counseling was so transformative for me in my life. A lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about is is my attempt to practice things that I know that are good for my own mental health. And so that's really the creative practices are little things that bring me joy. For instance, working with somebody who has chronic depression, part of the work there is to confront the depression. And part of the work there is to figure out how to focus on things that bring joy and add positives to our lives. It's not just getting away from negatives, but it's adding on positives. And so I try to do the same thing for myself. So yeah, that's looked like a number of different things. I've, I've Since I've become a father, I've gotten into family photography, and I never really would have known or thought of that as an art, but I found people who are doing that on Instagram and doing it really well and, and creatively and creating these beautiful images that look like they could be in a museum. And so that's probably the thing that I do the most just because I always have a camera sitting there and, you know, I'm often with my daughter. And then, yeah, I started playing guitar when I was a kid. So I have played guitar my whole life and I certainly haven't played in a band in a long time, but that was something I did when I was in my early 20s. So yeah, one of the things that we had emailed about was solo acoustic guitar. That's something that I can do by myself and not feel like I need uh, bandmates to join in on and then 
yeah, the reading, the writing, I, um, you know, I guess I, I, I feel the need to try my hand at a bunch of different things. And it's not so much about putting something out into the world. But for me, it's just about doing things that bring me like a little bit of joy. I'm glad that you said that, because I have a few things that I do as well that are being that I work in a creative field, and it's kind of like selling my creativity. I like to have things that are completely devoid of any like monetization or focus on work. And so for me, another one of those things is photography. Like I love, I love taking photos, you know, and it's fun to, to try and find those angles and lighting and things that really work. And it's just for the appreciation of it and the joy that it brings. So you brought up the acoustic guitar thing. And on our emails, you, you mentioned that you almost exclusively play in this one particular tuning called Dagad. And so for the listeners, if you don't know what that is, if you don't know the difference between dad rock or Dagad, it's an alternative way to tune the guitar. As a matter of fact, I'll drop in a quick snippet of audio of some Dagad stuff. How did you get into non-traditional tunings in guitar? I've been trying to remember that since we talked about it. And I think it was kind of a winding journey. I mean, I think certainly when I started working my first job out of seminary, I was by myself a lot. And so that's where like the solo acoustic guitar stuff started coming in, not having a band to play in. And I ended up joining the acoustic guitar forum online and just like being on there as like a discussion forum for various things. And they're both obsessed with playing and different 
different things that you can play, but they're also obsessed with the guitar itself, as I always have been. Like, I just have an appreciation for the instrument. You know, I think it started with singer-songwriters who play in unconventional tunings, like M. Ward. He doesn't play in Dadgad, but it's a, it's a close variation on that. I don't know if you're familiar with someone like Richard Thompson. He plays... I can't remember what tuning he plays in. It's a variation of standard tuning, where it's two two lowest strings, the E and the A, are are dropped down quite low. So I think it started out with that and then just exploring this whole world of solo acoustic guitar playing and coming across somebody like Ed Gearhart or, or Michael Watts and Will Ackerman. And there's so many people out there. But yeah, it's been this long winding road of just like being part of this forum and seeing what names people threw out there and seeing where that where that takes you. But I guess it's got, I I don't know, you probably know more than me, but it's probably got Celtic or Irish roots, I assume, because there's a lot of like Celtic kind of music out there in Dadgab. Yeah, it definitely has that suspended droney sound that you would hear in like a lot of Celtic music. And being in an open, an open tuning in the key of D, it's easy to have that sort of like static droning, long meandering melodic stuff happening in there. Yeah, I think, I think for me, I, the first time I heard Dagad was on like a Led Zeppelin record. Black Mountain Side is a solo song where Jimmy Page plays in that tuning. And I think that's where I heard it first. But yeah, a lot of these like modern acoustic players, especially the folks who live in that instrumental world who are like virtuosos, virtuosic in nature. A lot of those folks like Andy McKee or Don Ross or Khaki King will use that kind of stuff. And I think that's kind of how I kind of got entranced by it that and there was a song on a movie soundtrack back in like the early aughts i think it was garden state maybe but anyway colin hay singer of the band minute work put out some solo stuff and a lot of his stuff uses dagad as well and it's it's just got a very beautiful timbre to it like the way the chords sound so Anyway, enough about Dagat. We'll, we'll link to those things in the show notes. Uh, so some of the folks that, that Scott mentioned and the ones that I've mentioned, we'll, we'll drop them here in the notes so you guys can check this stuff out. If you're into acoustic guitar music, I could start another podcast about acoustic guitar. It's great to work to. Yeah, I, I can't listen to, to guitar music while I'm working because it just makes me want to play guitar. So I yeah, listen to piano music when I'm working. But anyway, so speaking about work, you you mentioned that you work in the recovery space as a mental health counselor. And one of the things I wanted to talk about was the fact that a lot of creative people do struggle with addiction, recovery, and mental health. And there's this pervasive notion, I think, in society that there's this trope. To be creative is to live a tortured life. And there are certainly dozens upon dozens of examples of musicians and writers and actors who've either been addicts or die by suicide, etc. But I kind of wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I want to hear your take as well. I, I don't have a clear cut answer to this, but I have a few thoughts. I mean, part of it is, you know, as a data nerd as well, part of me wonders if this is like a correlation or causation issue. Like we see somebody who's tortured, who is a good artist, and then we say there must be a causal relationship here rather than this is something that happens. And there's plenty of people who aren't tortured, who are also artists. So there's that piece of it. And then the other bit that I wonder about, and, and it would be difficult to study, but I hope somebody does, is I tend to think that when we when we have pain, we want to try to find some kind of meaning for it or redeem it in some way or explanation for it. And that can lead to insight. 
And people try to come about insight in a variety of ways, but one of those ways is through relying on your creative practices. So there probably is likely a, a very correlative relationship between people who have a lot of pain and then people who are trying to figure out what to do with it. Is it totally necessary? I'm not sure, but I think it is certainly necessary to try to work through the pain that we do have. And man, I, I you know, I, I'm so grateful for the people who've done it in, in, through music, which seems to be a really productive way of doing it, even though, as you said as well, there's lots of examples of that ending very poorly for some. Yeah, I'll give you my editorial version of this. I, I, I would agree that pain is inevitable. And one of the best ways to address pain and suffering in life is to channel it into creation. That being the case, I think that for creative people, it's a natural association, right? Because everybody's working through something. And so for the creatives who are putting work out there, it's a, it's a byproduct of being in, in view of other people. For the accountants who suffer and the service workers in the world, the people who don't have a creative product to put out there, it's no less real. And I think that the opposite is also true. If you want to be creative, you don't need to be in pain or suffering through something in order to have something to say. That's not the only place that inspiration can come from. A lot of great musicians have gotten sober and they still put out cool stuff later in their journeys. But I do think that there's something about people who live a creative life and choose that for themselves that maybe are more risk tolerant than say people who choose career paths that are more stable and more of a sure thing. And so there's probably some correlation between risk tolerance and curiosity around things like drugs and alcohol. And so because of the nature of substances and their ability to be addictive, I think that it's probably a byproduct. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, research backs that up as well. It's like one of the most predictive personality characteristics is risk-taking behavior, which you can see even in adolescence or young childhood. Another layer to this that I, I think is interesting is just because somebody is creative and has pain doesn't mean they're going to turn it into good art either. And I think when you're bringing up all those other professions, one of the things that makes me think about is no matter what your profession is, it seems to me that people either take that thing seriously as a craft or they or they don't. In order to put something really, really solid out there that a bunch of people would find meaningful or enjoyable to engage with, you'd really have to be a craftsperson. And I, I'm sure there's accountants out there who are much better than other accountants. Part of me thinks that regardless of the relationship between those things, a tremendous amount of work must go into the people who, who really end up standing above the crowd, so to speak. Yeah, I absolutely agree. There, There is no really shortcut to, to becoming a developed creative other than, well, there's no shortcut. It's just time and effort, right? You know, to that end, developing a craft is an end to itself, really, I think. You mentioned the way that you had entered the work world and left seminary and had sort of these changes in your approach to music. Has your relationship to creativity evolved over the years? It's a great question. In some ways, it's become more necessary as I've had less time for things. I mean, certainly when I had more time, I was more likely to squander it. So, I mean, to your question about rituals, it's like I have to build this time into my week now intentionally, which seems like such a bummer at first. And I know a lot of creatives don't like thinking about scheduling things. It's just you want to be inspired and have the spur of the moment. But 
I found that being highly structured and scheduled and routine oriented actually frees me up because I don't have to be worried about what I'm not doing when I am doing that because this is my time to be creative or whatever. So yeah, the, the schedule, the routine, that stuff has changed. But then over time, you just need it more for various reasons. My job is difficult. I work with people who sometimes pass away during our work together. So I, I certainly have to go to more funerals than the average person or speak at more funerals, certainly speak at more funerals than the average person. My wife and I have a, had our own pain in trying to become parents. We had a number of losses and could not become parents biologically. So yeah, I guess kind of tying into the question that you asked a few minutes ago, I've had my own pain to work through as well. And so the, the biggest change, I think, is really just my need to do these things regularly and not put them off to some time in the, in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I can appreciate that because to your point, if it's if it's not on the schedule, it's not going to happen. Goals don't manifest themselves as finished products without our cooperation. <laughs> and even you mentioned anxiety at the beginning and how meditation and mindfulness and mindful writing has been helpful for me. Like having a plan for my day is one of the things that treats my anxiety pretty well. If I wake up and have no idea what's going to happen today, I'm in that free floating space where it's a lot easier to drift into being not so effective. Yeah. I mean, I was getting trapped in this place of I would sit down to work. I would know there's 25 things I need to do, but and I couldn't pick which one. And so I would sit there wasting time trying to figure out what should I work on? What do I, what's most important for me to be working on? This is another ritual that I do now is I, I have sort of my tasks that I need to get done for a week. And then each, each night I spend a few minutes before I go to sleep, like planning which ones I do the next day. And so when I sit down the next day, I never have to think about what I'm working on. I just go through the list of things from most important to least important. And if I don't get to something and it's at the bottom of the list, I'd push it to the next day. And yes, it's really helped my anxiety. It's also been very freeing when it comes to doing things that aren't work related, because I can now sit down in that time and be fully present in that time and not be thinking about, I need to be doing these 10 other things. I know now I have time to do those things and it's set aside later. So yeah, I'm a, I guess, evangelist for having that kind of schedule now. That's awesome. And that's definitely something that has been a game changer for me in my personal life and my work life, just having those structures and routines because of all the reasons you just said. Scott, this has been a really great conversation and I really appreciate you being here today. What is coming up for you next and how can people connect with you? The big thing that's coming up for me is the organization that I work for is launching an aftercare program. So people who are um, leaving treatment and trying to integrate back into their daily lives, so to speak, we're launching a program to help bridge that transition. That's such a critical time, leaving treatment and then getting back into the stressors of daily life. It's It's really hard and there's a lot of people who who fall through a gap in that transition. So we are planning that and um, kind of in the process of accepting applications for our first group. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I, I love running groups. It's it's my favorite thing to do as a counselor. So I'm really looking forward to that. How can people get in touch with me? Because I'm a counselor, a lot of my stuff is private. I'm on Instagram as Scottish Things, and you can find me and I'll let you follow me even though it's private. It's an ethics thing that I have to do. Other than that, I have email. Scott, so this, it's a mouthful, but Scott at NorthStarCommunity.com. The organization I work for is called North Star Community. Absolutely. We will have all of Scott's contact information here in the show notes. Again, Scott, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Ritual. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. 
Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone that you think would love it. Special thanks to our producer, Emily Milling, and her team at The Ultimate Creative and our amazing business manager, Erica McCauley. I recorded the intro music for this podcast with Spencer Garn at Diamond Street Studios here in Atlanta. Until next time, I'm Daniel Lamb. And just remember, everything that you need to be creative is right here with you, within you, in this moment. Thank you.